No, we, we uh, thank you. Uh, as we, we're moving on to our new series uh, called Your Kingdom Come. Uh, and we really believe this is what God wants to speak to us in the season. And I want to thank Dave for sharing last week. Dave started us off with what does it mean is, um, Dave helped us by this series about how Jesus comes and he's preaching the good news of the kingdom and he has loads of teaching. This is probably one of the prominent themes of Jesus of the kingdom. And it was a central theme. And it, but the question is, what does that mean? What does it mean? And I think that it's entirely possible that Christians today are brought to the saving knowledge of Jesus but are missing the key component of living out his life. And I believe it's the invitation to be in the kingdom. You see, it's totally possible to ask Jesus to save us, but not let him be king. And that's what Dave was sharing us. What is the Bible talking about? God is king. He's king of everything. The one at the very beginning who speaks into chaos and causes order because of his authority and his rule. And as we just go through it, that's the entire Bible. And so when Jesus comes along and says, the kingdom is here. Well, what does that mean? Well, as Dave said, it's not a geographical rule, it's but, a, but a reign and a rule. It's about God taking dominion. And, and I, I like this, the kingdom of God, actually, if you were to say, what does it mean to be the, in the kingdom? Or what does it mean to this kingdom? It's this, the kingdom of God is not like the kingdom of this world. Absolutely unlike anything that we would understand or fathom what a kingdom would look like. And to give you an example of that, what I mean is, if you actually read uh, what Jesus started off in the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes are kind of like uh, Jesus telling you, what's it like living in the kingdom? And it's pretty backwards, actually. Jesus says, if you read the Beatitudes, it says, it's the principles of the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know about you, but that, that is so upside down from everything that I've taught. I've thought, blessed are those who have it all together. You know, when you've got it, just everything, tickety-boo, you are blessed. That's a good word. That's actually Greek, I think, somewhere. Tickety-boo. It's somewhere in there. Right, Dave? Amen? Amen. No, what Jesus taught presents with us what we, what we would call a spiritual paradigm shift a whole new way of looking at the world and its values. And even, even at a, just a cursor glance at what our modern lifestyle say, or what are their great values, what are the values that the world says? Jesus is absolutely opposite. Uh, the, the world, for example, there, there would be, say, there are three great things that the world says uh, are incredible values or things you would as- ascribe for. And these would be possessions, prestige, or potentially raw power. See, those who have riches consider themselves to be on the top, and those who do not envy them, we want more money. How many of you would like more money? Okay. Or how about those that are famous or stars? They considered to be on the top, on top of the world, and those who are not envy that they wish they were more famous. Or those who have political power consider themselves on the top. And again, likewise, others saying, well, they have all 
and can do all. But again, Jesus reverses it. The kingdom of God is not like, he says this, who is the greatest in the kingdom? The least. And and I love it because one of the things he says this, how do you even enter? You have to be like a child. I love that because it asks me, when we come to church, what is your perspective? How do you enter in? Do you enter like a kid? And, And he says, in fact, when you receive a kid, you are receiving me. Remember in the story when the disciples, they, had, they saw Jesus with a bunch of kids and they said, get those guys out of here. They're a disturbance. They're a nuisance. And Jesus says, no, no, that's not how the kingdom operates. When you receive them, you're receiving me. And, and unless you enter like a child, you will not enter the kingdom. And just unpack what does that mean to enter like a child. I got no money when I'm a kid. I don't have no power. I have no fame, unless I'm Terry's kids, because, you know, they, they're, they're golden, man. These guys are up here all the time. It's beautiful. <laughs> In fact, how do you, I just, I see this. Jesus actually boldly told when Pilate, on the, when he was being uh, prepared for crucifixion and he was in his trial, Pilate says, who do you say you are? You say you're a king. And, and, he, and this is what Jesus said, standing before him in John 18. My kingdom is not of this world. End story. So I want to look at God's word and we'll talk about his kingdom. If you have a device, please. I'm going to put the scriptures up there, but I really love for you to be, I'm going to read from John 17 and I'm going from verse one to three because it gives a little bit of context. But if you have your device, follow along because this is my favorite scripture. I know we have, you know, you're not supposed to really always come to your favorite scriptures, but this scripture for me is a super highlight. Why? Because this is kind of like Jesus' last will and testament. This is before he dies, before he is. He's now having a prayer to the Father. And so if I was to die today and I had a last say, and this is my most important stuff, this would be like what Jesus is doing. So I I love to, to really soak in, and it's deep revelation. So let's read verse three verses just to get a little bit of context because he's talking about his kingdom. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Notice the language there. Dave would love this because he'd say, you'll notice what's he speaking about? He's speaking about you have given all authority the kingdom. He's talking about the kingdom here. You've given it all to me, but I'm using this not for my own self-glorification, but that you, Father, would be glorified. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. What is eternal life? Knowing him. That's what he said. How do you, what, what, what could be the culmination of me understanding and having eternal life? Do you know Jesus? Well, then we, we're going to jump down to verse 14 because this is what I, I think is the interesting concept or the, the challenge about the kingdom. In verse 14 it says, I have given your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. 
They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, this is why I said it's, it's a really interesting concept when Jesus talks about these verses about being in the kingdom because I can completely understand Jesus not being of this world. He's not kind of made of this stuff. Uh, he's fully God, fully man. He's, he is without sin. So I can understand him not being of this world. But this is what I find interesting. Suddenly Jesus says, and you and I are not of this world. How many of you have troubles relating to that statement right there? You are not of this world. I'll tell you why, because usually what I have noticed all throughout church history, we have struggled to actually figure out how do we do this. And what I believe is there's really three types of ways that Christians have decided to live. And I, I want to aim for one that I think that God had an intent for. Now, the first one is this, is what I would call the cloistered Christian. What's a cloistered Christian norm? That's just a really weird word. A cloister. Well, a cloister is a monastery. In other words, I would like to say it's a, a, a modern Christian monk. What do you mean a modern Christian monk norm? I don't quite get you. Well, let me explain. You see, in the Dark Ages... The church decided, we don't want to really, the world is getting evil, it's getting really dark. You know what we need to do? We need to get into our little monasteries and get away from all of the evil. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. We need to kind of get in and, and, and preserve ourselves as the world is going bad. You ever seen Christians operate like that? They literally don't handle, don't taste, you know what, we don't want to be contaminated. In fact, I probably just want to hang out with my Christian friends. I just want to hang out where it's safe and, and secure. But what does Jesus say to them, to, to this type of living? He says, I'm not taking you out of the world. Living as a, as a cloistered Christian isn't an option. Apparently, as Jesus says, if you want to be in the kingdom. Well, the other one is this, he, I would call a Colossus Christian. Cloister, Colossus, I had to keep with a C. No, I'm explaining this. A, Col- a Colossus Christian. Well, a Colossus Christian, a Colossus was this. There was a statue in the early, uh, in, in the early times of an ancient, in the ancient Greece, uh, of the Colossus of Rhodes. They made this a massive 100-foot statue that at the, road, at the city of Rhodes, at the harbor, this, this statue stood with one foot on one side of the harbor and the other one on the other. And what it did is the ships passed through. It was this amazing uh, wonder of the world. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. But then what happened is only 54 years later, it didn't last very long, an earthquake happened and this thing broke at the knees and fell in. And all of them said, it wasn't because they, they, it was so amazing how they built this, but the problem was it was straddled on two different places. Now, what do I mean by a Colossus Christian? Well, what I see is this, is sometimes as Christians, it's very easy to have the same kind of perspective that what ends up happening is, and I'm going to use an illustration because I'm a visual person, that we kind of te- have this challenge of how we walk or stand, one in the kingdom of a world and the other one in the kingdom of God. But now, I, I don't know about you, but the, see, this is kind of not really the most 
way chairs are supposed to be. This is not the best way to stand, really. But let's, let me share why it gets a little more precarious. These are opposing places. I said they're opposite. They're different. So imagine, I'm just going to have to do a little bit more because it gets really crazy. They're not, they don't coexist. Now at this point, when I'm still living in this lifestyle, it's very uncomfortable. <laughs> I wonder why it, 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 it I, I, I kind of want to go, <sighs> I try to bring it back. This is how it coexists. Have you ever seen a Colossus Christian? Have you ever tried to live like a Colossus Christian? As a teenager, I totally tried to live that way. Totally. How many have, you know, understand, I have one foot in the world and one foot in God, and it was not working. In fact, what I, I found interesting, though, this is what God said. But Norm, you think that's what you were like with a teenager, but you still do that today. There are times when I have one foot in the world and then the other foot where God wants me and then I wonder why it's all painful. His kingdom is not like this. It thinks differently. How many times I have to rejig my thinking to not think worldly? Amen. This is the worst way to live and yet most of us in North America live like that. The third way, which I really believe is the way God wants and intended, is to be the in-Christian. I like that. It very, sounds very hip. Are you in? Are you the in-Christian? What do you mean by being the in-Christian? Well, it, again, the kingdom of the world is, or kingdom of God is not like the kingdom of this world. And when you say you're in the in-crowd, well, that kind of denotes that you are kind of got it, something that someone else doesn't. But that's not the kingdom. The kingdom is this, to be in Christ. It means this. It means that in the kingdom, all are allowed in. All have access. There is no exclusion. We all have the ability to be in. It's the question of putting both feet in. In Christ. All or nothing not half, not a little, all. Do you get it? How many of you believe Jesus wants to be in him? Every ounce, every part, all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's, that's what we're after. So, how do we do that? See, I know we're supposed to be in Christ, but as I said, I think I struggle. God says, I want you to, to come into a newness of what your kingdom come, your will be done. What does that mean to live and be in the kingdom? So, how, Lord? How do I get in? Well, I'm going to focus on one thing. There's many ways. He said, enter like a child, do all these things. There's just one thing that God is going to say. He wants you to get one concept. And I've actually found it very funny of how this concept is because it's kind of a twist on what the world is giving to us right now. I'll explain. If you want to get from one, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, it's going to require to do this. Determine your identity. Okay? Determine your identity. Well, why am I saying that? Did you know there's this huge teaching or thing that's going about how you self-identify? Anyone heard what that means? Everybody? I self-identify. Because I self-identify, this is what I am. 
Now, I, I first thought, what a weird thought. I self-identify as a chair, therefore I'm a chair. I don't care how you self-identify, you're not a chair, unless somebody's sitting on you. Well, then, maybe, I don't know. But the concept of the thought is, suddenly God's saying, actually, there is a part truth to this. Who do you identify with? Who do you identify? If you identify, it gives you the power, really, to say, God, who am I, and who are you in me? And I'll explain this. To be in the kingdom, you're going to have to self-identify. There comes an understanding of who do I want to be. I think when I was doing the Colossus Christian, I suddenly was getting tired of being in both, and I said, I want something different. This is painful. So I want to step in. I want to be who you called me to be. Do you know everybody's been called by God? I love it. Today, I was going to use this word, you have a destiny, a purpose. And then I knew God was reinforcing it when we had a lovely lady come here with her name, Destiny. And I was like, yeah, God, you brought destiny to us today. Pretty well. Because sometimes we don't believe. We wouldn't believe. God, you have a purpose. You have a plan. You have a hope and a future for us. I don't know. It's Jeremiah, I think, what he said that. But we'll keep going. To be in the kingdom, you identify. So identify as what? What do you need to identify? Well, here we go. First, and this is kind of neat. If I'm going to identify, I want to identify with important things. So Jesus wants us to identify as a person that is resurrected. Paul says this, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this is how we step into the kingdom. We identify as a resurrected person. Now, I don't, this is the challenge about talking about resurrection. Do you know why? I have to tell you what resurrection first means. You have to die. I love the idea of being born to life, but how many of you like the concept of dying? Not a very popular message in our world today. I love the concept that we have life and life to the full, but there was, a, there was also a teaching that Jesus said. He taught, you have to die. Now, in fact, he got pretty crazy about it. Um, in Luke chapter 9, verse 24, this is what Jesus said, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it or gain it. And John's account is even harsher. John, in the, in the gospel of John, says this, John 12, 25, whoever loses his life, loses his life, loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, what he's saying is, losing your life, so what, what do I mean by losing your life? Well, this is what losing your life comes to. It's when you come to the place that you don't want to be in charge. As John says, John actually takes it further. He says, when you hate when you're in charge. For when we're not in charge, you actually gain eternal life. This is how we die when we live in the kingdom. We say, I am not wanting to be in charge anymore. Now, I don't know about you, but I think like this. Why do we struggle then giving control or charge to God? How many of you struggle with that? I absolutely do. And I I ask the question, what what keeps me back from literally willing to to die or to do the things that God wants you to do and to really give him control? 
Well, I realize that a fear kicks in. There's a fear about not being in control. And it's weird how we have fears. Fears can be very irrational. And especially this fear of giving up control is very irrational. I'll tell you why. Like, think about it. How many people know that there are, there, are, there are people that are afraid of ants? Did you know that? They're afraid of ants. That is really weird. These little things, what are they going to do to you? There are some people that are afraid of mice. Now, I don't know why you'd be afraid of mice. It's irrational. I mean, it takes at least a dozen to make a meal. Like, come on. Like, but there's even something even more powerful that, they, that studies said people where they literally feel incapacitated. They're afraid to fly. Now, what, again, what's the rationale of being afraid to fly? I think it's because maybe they're afraid, well, you're so up so high, so obviously the coming down part could hurt if you, you know, don't land. And I can see the rationale, but... This is what's funny. It's, it's not rational because statistically saying, it, flying is way more safer than driving a car. In fact, they, they were just sharing this. I was looking at some studies that in the Canada, US, and UK, and make sure that I think this is per month, there is approximately 10,600 different automobile accidents that result into death or serious injury every month. 10,600 automobile accidents. How many of you get in your car and think, I'm going to get killed today? Not many. We will now. <laughs> Just to give you an idea of how many air, how many, how many um, air, air traffic problems it would have to be, we would have to literally have 26 jumbo jets crash in a 24-hour period to match that. It's actually proven statistically that it's safer to fly than to walk. So why are we afraid? Why, what happens? Well, the truth is, what they said is most of these people are afraid because they're actually sitting in a place and they can't see who's in control. That's the fear. So every time a bump goes, going, oh, okay, well, what's going to, what? And it's the fear of them not having, now, if you put that person, it's weird, you put a person in front of the steering wheel and then they become like, all-powerful. Ever have that experience? Watch when your teenager gets into driving. It's amazing. Your prayer life goes to a whole different level, but I won't go there. Feel the power. Anyway, it, but I think it's because this, as human beings, we are absolute control freaks. We want to be God. We want to be God. We want to have control. We want to have what we say and what we matter. This, it, this is all about me, and when I don't have control, I'm afraid. So to enter in the kingdom, the thing is, you're, you're going to really have to die. And I love that, Dave, you brought up such a great message last week when you said, what is the thing that he will come, overcome at the very end? Death. And the fear of death. That, the greatest enemy of humankind, now done. Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Why, as Christians, do we avoid death? when actually it's the one thing you're guaranteed will happen. And I'm not trying to say that we need to have a martyr mentality. I'm just saying, if you want resurrection, you have to be willing to die. Not my will, but your will be done. Lord, I want your kingdom to come. Didn't that what Jesus said? And because of his willingness to lay down his life, guess who gets the benefits? Us. And in the same way, God's going, do you know sometimes he asks you to die? 
What do you mean? Die to your pleasures. Die to the things that you, that you feel are what you want to have control of. Die. But here's the beauty of it. Because you see, if you stuck on that part, you would miss out on resurrection. You die, but why? To have life. His intent isn't to kill us. His intent is to give life. And when I get that concept, when I identify that you want to give me resurrection power, when you're wanting me to operate out of a resurrection life, it's amazing because it's a life that is eternal. It's a life that has a different perspective. And I'll tell you why it's so freeing. Because when I have died to that, I now have a new life that says I don't have to be in control. I don't have to play God. I don't have to carry the burden of caring for my family or caring for my work or caring for my um, whatever situation. I'm not God. I am not, it's not mine. It's his, his kingdom. It's so freeing. This is not my church. I don't have to try to care or carry the burden of controlling if I die. Suddenly he gives me this life and peace and joy because I don't have to play God. I'm going to get tired of playing God. I, I realize many times that I'm, I do, I do. I want to have control over this person's life and what they say and how they respond. I want to see if they come to know Jesus and I want, I want this and this. And then God's saying, just die and let me give you my life, my hope, my perspective. It's beautiful. And that's how we step into it. I identify as a resurrected person. And I'm hoping that, that that'll sink into you as well. First Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us, because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him. For his sake, they... They die and have have been raised. So from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Well, I want to move on to another way how you can identify. I want want to identify with what? Yes, I want to identify as a, a person who is... Uh, resurrected, but I also want to identify as a person of repentance. This is it. John the Baptist started this, the first saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus continued. This was the key to actually entering in the kingdom. You cannot, you will continue to straddle this unless you have understood a wonderful gift, becoming a person of repentance. Well, what is repentance? It means to turn from sin and turn towards God. But the word actually means turn from the way you're thinking. And I'm going to unpack that. True repentance is actually turning away from the way you think. And it has a much more deeper meaning than we actually give credit to. In fact, if you start to think, what does it mean to turn away from a thinking? How repentance is this? How much we should be repenting? See, I often think that sinner, that person over there needs to repent. And God's going, yes, they do. They need to change the thinking. But he's going, what about you, Norm? You need to repent. Well, 
what is repentance? It's this. It's, it's technically being so sorrowful for the effect of sin in your life. The change then happens that the perspective turns you away from your thinking. And Romans 2, 4 says this, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. My perspective of God's goodness actually helps me to turn away from this sin. Now, repentance is so key to this colossal Christian. Because I see the destructive power that sin does, the pain it causes, and suddenly God gives me a revelation that sin is producing death. I don't want this pain anymore. So every time I live in anger or my lust or my selfishness, I'm living in the flesh, the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death, and the, wage, the flesh is actually death. Really? Anger causes death? How many of you have been around an angry person? It not only affects them, it actually affects everyone around them. And a revelation of going, I don't want my anger. It only comes through repentance. And this is where I go, Lord, Father, show me. Show me how my foot is in this part. Lord, reveal to me. I don't even see what I need to, what my thinking is. Sometimes we don't even recognize what we're thinking is so worldly until the Holy Spirit comes in and shows us how we have one foot in the world because we're thinking and talking and acting like what we're not supposed to. The kingdom's so opposite. And all I can say is, thank you, Father, for showing that. Lord, I repent. To really get in the kingdom, I have to make a self-identification of a person of repentance. A person who's quick to repent. And now, how do you do that? How do you make a shift? It's, it's actually a shift in thinking. It's by faith. We repent by faith. This is not some hyped-up effort to live for God or try to live a life that is unreal or supernatural. It's based on a truth, the reality that goes beyond your feeling or what you see. The righteous shall live by faith. Repentance is actually faith. And I'll explain why. How many of you still feel like you struggle or have deal with temptations that you say, I still struggle with sin? And I'm going to, I normally don't do this, but I'd like you to put up your hand if you actually still struggle or have times where you're battling temptation and things. Everyone. Wow, okay. How many of you believe that Jesus has taken away your sin and he is transforming you. All of us put up our hands again. Now, that doesn't make sense. How can you in one sense say, I am dealing with sin, and then the next minute saying, but I'm sinless, and that is absolute crazy. You are, you're, not, you're actually double-talking right now. Ah, no, you're not. When you believe in faith. Because faith is the evidence of things unseen. Do we see our sin? Well, what does God see? Does God see your sin? Actually, no. I think he actually puts it to the sea of forgetfulness. What he sees is Christ. If you read in John 17, when he gets in, he goes, the same love that the Father has for him, I now have for you. I no longer see your sin. But how many of us keep seeing our sin? I need to change my mind. I actually have to repent. You're bringing up a sin, and I'm not thinking that way, is what the Lord says. You keep thinking that you are so bad, and God's going, I see what Jesus is doing in you. In fact, I can transform you. 
It is impossible to believe in repentance if you think you're stuck. If you you have anything in your life that you say, this will never change, it's impossible to repent. In fact, what you need to do is repent because you've just declared that God cannot do it. Woe is me if I start saying that. Because that means, am I saved? If he can't deal with me, how do I believe he can deal with me? I mean, man, you guys don't know how much sins I do. And that's the point. You don't. But I don't harbor him because I live by faith. What he has done. See, church, I think to enter the kingdom, we have to identify as people who are quick to repent. Lord, change my mind. Change my thinking. Lord, I don't want to see just sin. I want to see, I don't want to see other people's sin. I want to see what you have done, what you've paid, what you have done for us. I'll, I'll give you an example of the most, probably most impacting repentance I've just done recently. We went, uh, we went down to a conference, Andrew and I, to uh, Bethel. We were at a prophetic conference. And while we were there, what happened is this. I just had come back, or we just went down, and while we were at the conference, some of you know, um, I had an incredible miracle happen to my sister. I was able to lead her to the Lord. So some of you, you've known that. And so God had just done some, I've been praying for my sister for 30 years. Well, when I was down here, and this is the power of worship, Terry, because worship actually gets our brain and focuses when we listen to God in the midst of worship. What happened, and during the worship, God was speaking to me. And I had to repent so intensely. And I'll explain why. This song came up, and I'm going to give you the, the words to this. And, and just the first part of the song, it's called, um, You Can Do It Again. This is the song. Walking around these walls, I thought by now they'd fall, but you have never failed me yet. Waiting for change to come. I'm going to get teary because I'm having like remembrance of what this, while well, I was worshiping the Lord, this song, what I was th- declaring. But you have never failed me yet. Waiting for change to come, knowing the battle's won, for you've never failed me yet. This is verse 2. I know the night won't pla- pass, won't last, sorry. Your word will come to pass. My heart will sing your praise again. Jesus, you're still enough. Keep me within your love. My heart will sing your praise again. And this is the, chorus, or the, the bridge. Your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness. Faithfulness. I'm still in your hands. This is my confidence. You never failed me yet. And now I want to show you, this is actually the clip when we were down there worshiping. So you, if you look in a crowd, you might not see me. Catch that anyway. And I want you to get to the chorus because this is when God spoke to me and I had a deep repentance. So if you listen, he'll put the, cor- he'll put the, the lyrics up for it too as you see it. So go ahead.
why I got super repentant. Because God was adjusting my thinking. I suddenly was thinking, my, my sister just got saved. But now I'm working through this thing called cancer. And the song came up. I've seen you move. I've seen how you've done one miracle. How could I not believe you could do another miracle? I've seen you move the mountains, and I believe that you can do it again. And went deep. My heart was sorrowful for how I sometimes doubt, and something rose in me a faith, a faith of repentance, going, God, I want to be a person who believes in the miraculous power of God. I am so sorry for thinking how small you are. I had a deep repentance. Because that's the problem. I suddenly have my one foot in the world and the other one over here, and I wonder why it's painful. And God's going, come on over. Think the way I think. I've seen you move. I've seen your power. I know, and you can do it again. This is the, where, the place where I'm supposed to live when I'm in Christ. And it makes a radical difference. If I'm praying, God, your kingdom come and your will be done, on earth as is in heaven. God, I want us as a church to step into the kingdom. But that means you really have to be a person of, of and I'm, Andrew, you can shut it down. I'm just going to close it with this. It has to be these two things, identifying with, are you a person who wants to be resurrected? Now, of course, that means you're going to die. I'm not going to put any bones about it. It means sometimes you're going to be letting go of things and God's going to point to you and say, that attitude or this needs to die. It's not your life anymore. Let go. But if you let go, you gain. In fact, you get the freedom of not having to be in control anymore. I don't have to worry and I don't have to fret because he is God. I do not have to play God anymore. I'm tired of being God. And it leads right to the next one, a people of repentance, a person of repentance. I want to repent more and more and more and more. I actually want to be so quick to repent. People go, this guy's weird. Like, do you think he's a, it's not that I think I'm an evil, horrible sinner. It's that I want to get the mind of God. I want to shift my thinking all the time. Because I don't want to live one foot in what I actually want to constantly go, God, forgive me for thinking that way. That when you, I'm so quick to say, I'm sorry for the way I was thinking about you too. Or I didn't, I'm not thinking bad. I just was picking on them. These guys, I had them over for dinner. I love them. Anyway, I'm sorry for the way I was thinking about you because that's not what God sees. That's not his image that he's placed in. Or when I've lost hope about something or when I thought negative about somebody, I repent. That is not the kingdom. I don't want to be God anymore. I'm tired of it. And that's beautiful. It's liberating. So, Father, I just thank you for your word. We are in this world, but we are not a part of it. And Lord, I thank you for the invitation for us, Lord, to step into you, to step into Christ in a new way, in this, that, Lord, we actually are embracing the life that you've called us to be, where, Lord, it's totally full of your love because we know that you who died, you who gave up your son, you, how much more are you helping us or or willing to do all things? Father, it changes my perspective. It helps me not to think the way the world is thinking. Lord, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. Lord, blessed are when I mourn because you comfort. 
Lord, blessed am I when I'm persecuted, when all these things are hitting me, because, Lord, you then are proving that your kingdom is advancing. Lord, I want to thank you that this, this, this day I want to declare your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, help us to step into it. Help us to be in the kingdom, in Christians. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.